Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. Hello, everybody. We are here with uh, Lucas Nelson. Lucas, thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll have a, a very interesting conversation. And I will tell you guys why. Uh, Lucas intitulates himself as a proud geek and a hacker that turned VC. So he's a founding partner at Lytical Ventures, uh, focused on early stage companies and uh, corporate intelligence space, which is cybersecurity, data analytics, and artificial intelligence. Lucas brings an, a decade of uh, investment, operational, and entrepreneurial experience to, to his role. He is uh, also co-author of uh, The Art of uh, Software Security Testing and chaired uh, DEF CON, which is the largest hacking convention in the U.S., for 10 years. And he has been a member of uh, the New York tech community since 1999. He is also adjunct professor at uh, NYU, teaching the class of uh, entrepreneurship for hackers, and is a Kaufman Fellow. Lucas, again, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited for this conversation because the very uh, half an hour time that I had to speak to you uh, at a, a Kaufman contest, it was awesome to see what you were doing and uh, to know a little bit about your experience. And I'm sure everybody will enjoy listening to your journey. <laughs> thank you for that very kind introduction and thank you to all your listeners. And I think I'm going to get this right. Muito prazer. I've got a couple words left. Great. Yeah, you have to come back to increase your vocabulary. <laughs> I haven't been back in years. So pleasure, Lucas. I, as Laura mentioned, right, uh, which is very interesting, you intitulate yourself as a proud geek, a hacker turned VC. We'd love to go back to your early days, like long before Lytical Ventures, maybe even before your days at Purdue and at Dartmouth, and tell us a little bit about your accomplishments as a hacker. Uh, so the geek part, I had a, um, I'm going to say it was 1994, 93. Uh, I got into the, uh, the bulletin board systems, right? So you call and use your computer to, to download video games. And I quickly got into hacking. I think it's safe to talk about this now. I wanted internet access And so I broke into our local college to get internet access. So I found a username and password and then used that to download the password database. And then I ran a cryptographic function against that to get everybody's username and passwords. I really do hope the statute of limitations is up on that. But that's how I got into this stuff at the age of like, yeah, 13, 14. I actually, you know, I started by I read a book. I read a book about hacking by a guy named Cliff Stoll. It's called The Cuckoo's Egg. And, um, you know, I was fascinated by the idea of taking control of other people's computer systems, right? So my theory is this. When you're a young kid, 12, 13, 14, you don't have a lot of control in the world. You know, your parents tell you what to do. School tells you what to do. You can't drive, so you can't go anywhere by yourself. 
and the ability to like take over computers just gave me this control that I didn't have anywhere else in my life. And it's a super interesting puzzle. You're essentially trying to, you know, outsmart the other side of this. Like they're trying to keep you out. You're trying to get in. Uh, so it's an interesting puzzle. And tell us a little bit about uh, your motivation besides uh, autonomy and being the owner of your actions. What else uh, drove you to this world of hackers? Um, any particular issue that uh, that you were looking for or at that time? No, it was literally just a way to kind of... So I grew up in a small town. My town is one stoplight. Now, it's near Dartmouth College, which is a bigger town. But like my town is tiny. And uh, back in 1995... If you were into different music and different fashion, and you grew up in a town that had like 50 kids, you were probably the only one. And so today you're like, oh, of course, you're just going on Facebook and find your tribe. Like that wasn't a possibility back then. And that's kind of how I found my tribe. I'm still best friends with a couple people that I met when I was 13 or 14 on the internet. I talked to one of those guys yesterday the godfather of another one's son. So these are people I've known now for 30 years. Uh, and it all started on internet bulletin board chat systems. So it was probably mostly a thing of belonging. And at the time, I wanted to talk about this stuff, right? At the time, I was like, I want to be cool. But like, you look at it now, you're like, oh, I wanted to feel like I belonged somewhere. Oh, yeah. It's always something related to safety and belonging. <laughs> That's what's hard. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, moving to the other topic that uh, Carolina mentioned, how was uh, the, the experience of uh, writing or co-writing the book and how this, the idea came from? Yeah. Okay. So started out hacking uh, for fun. Okay. So, and then I went to college. I went to Purdue. And they had the world's leading security researcher Well, one of the three, right, there at the time. So I learned a bunch there. Then I graduated school. I went to a software startup. I was a programmer for a couple of years. We sold that company to DoubleClick. So we made some money, uh, not a ton, but enough that I could take a year off and do Capoeira in Brazil. So I traveled all over Brazil for a year doing Capoeira, which was awesome. If you guys have not done that in Brazil, you should take a year off and go around the country. And Where did you take the idea of coming to Brazil? I mean, where did it come from? <laughs> so you all, of course, like for anyone in the U.S. listening, Capoeira is this amazing martial art that's part yeah. dance, part acrobatics, and part beating people up. Cool. I saw someone doing it in a park here in Manhattan. Oh. And I was like, well, that's awesome. Like, kicked somebody and then did a backflip. And I was like, sold. <laughs> I want to do that. And so I got really involved in Capoeira. And my teacher... I'm editing this. There, there's a whole, it's a long story. But the short story is my teacher's like, you should go to Brazil. And I was like, I should go to Brazil. <laughs> so I visited Brazil for like a week. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. The food's amazing, the music. So I decided like, well, I'm going to quit my job and travel all over Brazil doing martial arts. If you've ever read the book Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, he's got this line that like every young man you know, up until they're like 30 believes that if they trained really hard, they could become like a ninja. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a ninja. I'm going to move to Brazil and train capoeira 24 hours a day. I got pretty good, but I never became a ninja, sadly. You're like, I'm a hacker, and I'm going to become a ninja as well, right? Exactly. <laughs> You're going to yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> When you go this far back, it's all like dumb kid stuff, right? Like, yes, I want to break into computers, and I want to be a ninja. Who doesn't want to do those things, right? I came back from my trip to Brazil, and some of the hackers I had met online called me up and said, hey, you're back in town. We started this group. It's called At Stake. 
We do computer security consulting. So we break into computers for a living. You're interested. And at that time, you couldn't get a degree in this stuff, right? Today, you can go get a degree in you know, penetration testing or red teaming or whatever you want. But like the way they found people is they called their friends up and like, hey, you've got a skill set that we need. Come join us. And so I did. So I get to break into places like Goldman Sachs, the bank, or Tiffany's. You know, this is 1999, 2000? No, it's just, this is 2001. This is just after the, the big crash. And so I got to break in all these things. Like one of my favorite stories is the New York Stock Exchange had a wireless yeah. system that was pre-Wi-Fi. Used thing that became the Wi-Fi standard, but it wasn't the Wi-Fi standard yet. And so we had to order special hardware because they test hardware from this place and then write our own Linux drivers. But our office was like across the street. So from across the street, I could log in and just like watch all their traffic, right? Because nothing was encrypted. Yeah. Encryption, what's that? So that group of folks that hired me, one guy's name is Chris Weisopel. His hacker handle was Weld. He is at a place called Veracode now. Veracode has been got bought for seven or $800 million. Uh, he's done very well there. He and I were on a project in Redmond, Washington. I can say this now. We were, we were at Microsoft. And to break into Microsoft stuff, we generally would have to write our own tools. You could use off-the-shelf tools, but there, back then there weren't that many good hacking tools. And for a bunch of the stuff you wanted to do, you just write your own. And so you're sitting around at a bar having a beer after work one day, and we're like, you know, there's no good book on how to write tools to break other software. We should write that. So we did. That's essentially how the book, the, the Art of Software Security Testing, came into being. We actually retooled it a little bit. There was a couple chapters on writing your own tools, a couple chapters on tools that already existed. And we put it together a great group. I'm happy to say I was by far the dumbest person on that book. My co-authors were all amazing. Dino Daisovi is another co-author, was one of the first people to break out of VMware, to break out of a container into the underlying operating system. Again, that's probably way too deep for everybody. But just know that like that dude's technically amazing, and I got to hang out with him. So imagine you break up VMware, and uh, what do you do next? I mean, do you call the company and say, listen, I know that, uh, that you have a security breach, and I know how to fix it? Or what do you do with this information or with the project of uh, breaking something? Well, it depends. Different times of my life, the answer is different, right? So when I was in high school, I then used that stuff for like, hey, I need internet access. <laughs> By the time I was doing it professionally, I wasn't doing it for fun anymore. It's highly frowned upon. Some people still did some of that work. Dio's probably a pretty good example. At this point in time, in the early 2000s, you'd release research papers on it. Uh, today, you can sell those in bug bounties uh, for lots of money. If you can jailbreak an iPhone, that's worth, I don't actually know what it's worth. It's worth more than a million dollars. I don't know how much more than a million dollars. I just know it's worth more than a million dollars, right? Because there's government agencies that would pay you a lot for that. Uh, there's companies that would pay you a lot for that. Sadly, you know, Apple really isn't interested in paying you a lot for that because they're just going to fix it, right? So it's of limited value to them. It's mostly about avoiding a scandal. But if you're the U.S. government, and you want to break into all the iPhones, that's pretty valuable, right? So there are uh, definitely markets to do that kind of thing. But again, I'm not an expert in that area anymore. Uh, I'm about 10 years removed from it, sadly. Really interesting. So you shared a little bit about your experience working at some of the tech companies, right? And some of the interesting experiences you had there. Before we get into you and the VC world, 
I would like to learn what were your biggest lessons and challenges in the operator route, right? In a really cool operator route. Um, and what made you make the move? Sure. So as it turns out, had you asked me when I graduated college, I would have told you, I want to sit in a dark room and code computers all the time. That was my dream. That's what I thought I wanted to do for my entire life. And then I got out in the real world and started working. And I found that technical problems are interesting, but people problems are more interesting. At the end of the day, how you manage and work with people uh, is way more interesting than kind of the technical problems that I thought I wanted to solve for the rest of my career. And so that's what starts me on this path of leaving, doing, breaking the computers and starting to work with people on other things, venture like capital and, and so on and so forth. There's a whole bunch of interesting problems in tech, but to my mind, management of people is always kind of the most interesting. If you think of managing computer programmers as hard, oh, those are some hard people to manage. Uh, software security, cybersecurity people are like divas compared to them, right? They're even harder because they can go get a new job. Oh, a programmer can get a job in two days. Well, you know, if you're in cybersecurity, people have been calling you for the last month begging you to leave your job. You don't stay in a job you don't like and your value just keeps going up each time you move. In the U.S., there's a million open cybersecurity jobs right now. So no one can hire fast enough. My startups can't hire fast enough. Google can't hire fast enough. Like, no one can fill the jobs. So automation is coming into play. We can talk about that later. That's why AI and ML are so important is because we just we can't put enough butts in seats. So we have to figure a technological way out of it. But to my mind, human problems are by far the most interesting. Wow. <laughs> it's all about uh, humans at the end of the day. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. And how did the idea of uh, founding uh, Lytical came? I mean, and how did you team up with your partners uh, for that? So let me, I'll give a brief overview of what Lytical is and then I'll explain. Yeah. What came up. Uh, so Lytical Ventures is a new fund. We're about two, two and a half years old. Me and my partner, Steve Burr, are kind of the core nucleus. We've hired a principal recently, a guy named Graham Carroll. There's a a larger cast of characters that we surround ourselves with. Uh, if you guys want to go into that, I can. But we're focused on what we call corporate intelligence. Corporate intelligence is uh, cybersecurity, data analytics, and then kind of AI in those two swim lanes. And it's a really simple thesis. Corporations have woken up to an obligation to their data. They need to protect their data. They need to treat insights and wisdom. They need to monetize it. So if you're doing one of those things, you're in our wheelhouse. And this came about in a bunch of interesting ways. So my partner, Steve, and I had done a small fund together. He was going to raise $10 million and start like a pre-seed fund. And another one of our kind of other cast of characters, I mean, Craig Lifshitz, Craig came to us and said, hey, I work with a hedge fund guy. He wants to start a venture capital firm in cybersecurity. And I was like, yeah, it's a, not a great idea. The stuff you need to be good at hedge funds is different than the stuff you need to be good at for venture capital. I don't think it's a good idea. And he said, well, you know, what should I learn? So I introduced him, I brought him to DEF CON, a big hacking convention. I introduced him to a bunch of people. And he came back to me and said, well, if you were going to start a firm, you know, what would you do? I said, oh, I don't want to start a firm. I have a job. Thank you very much. My partner, Steve, though, like that guy wants to start a firm. Go talk to Steve. And so they went and chatted. And a little bit later, they came back and said, all right, we've decided to start a firm. And you're the second person in it. It's going to be you and Steve. You start Monday. And I was like, can I ask my wife? They're like, sure. You can totally ask your wife. You start Monday. You can ask your wife, but the only answer is yes, right? 
<laughs> I got a chance to start a fund doing exactly what I do, right? Cybersecurity, something I am passionate about with two of my friends, right? Craig is a friend of mine. Steve and I are longtime friends. That sounds like the best job in the world. Who would say no to that? I wisely said yes. We're investing with fund one. We're starting fundraise with fund two. It's been an awesome ride. I could not be happier. I'm the luckiest person in the world. And how was uh, fundraising and finding the first investors uh, considering uh, your background? Yeah, so fundraising is always tough. Let me be very, very clear. We had a bit of a leg up in fund one. I mentioned uh, Jeff Keswin, who's one of our investors. He's got a Rolodex that is just killer. He made a bunch of introductions for us, and he really helped us raise fund one. Without his help and his guidance, I don't think we would have been able to do it especially not as quickly as we did in nine to 12 months. I think it was more like nine. Uh, so pretty, pretty fast. Because, you know, most funds take 18 months, two years to raise. And that's not a knock, right? Like it's hard. It's a lot of getting at bats. You don't have a proven track record. It's really tough. There's the risk that, you know, Steve and I wouldn't get along. I mean, you know, we've been working together for four or five years. But, but even then, there were people who asked us like, well, what happens if you guys have a fight? Fundraising is one of those surprising things where I thought I was going to hate it. I thought I was going to dread doing it. And it turns out, I just love it. I get to tell people about what we're up to. I think what we're up to is interesting. I try to impart that feeling onto them. Like, here's why cybersecurity is such a cool place to be playing right now. So yeah, it's, it's a ton of fun. I really do enjoy it. Even when they don't give me money, I like talking to people. So let's use that. And I mean, cybersecurity sounds really cool, right? And I bet that a lot of your investors... They're a layperson, right? They don't really know at the depth what is cybersecurity. So let's pretend you're pitching to one of your LPs. Like, how would you describe what is a cybersecurity company in a one size fits all? Again, we do corporate intelligence. So I'm going to broaden it just a little, which is, you know, cybersecurity and data analytics. And what I'd say is the world has fundamentally changed a bunch in the last five years. There's kind of three reasons that cybersecurity is so interesting today. There's a technological change that's happened. AI and ML have come in. And if you think of machine learning, really it's training computer models to detect anomalies, detect things that are different. And that's all that cybersecurity really is, is anomaly detection. Hey, this one doesn't look like the others. That's really powerful. The second is a kind of a social change. We've moved everything online. Before COVID, that was happening. You could see it happening. And then COVID just turned that dial up to 11, where, hey, my first grader is going to be online. That's crazy, but it's true now, right? I don't buy groceries anymore. I just go online to do it because over COVID, I couldn't leave the house. So they deliver stuff. We're there. So that has shifted a lot of things both online, but also work from home, which ended kind of the old security model of a perimeter. I'll put a fence around the corporation and we'll be safe. But when everyone's working from home, You can't really put a fence around everyone's home and then, you know, a secure pipe back to the corporation. So that's changed things. And then the final thing is the spending in cybersecurity. Uh, so I'll rattle off a number for you. Uh, the annual growth rate of cybersecurity is something like 28%. That's just astounding. That's eight times the growth rate of the rest of the United States. So why is it growing so fast? Well, I can point out a bunch of different stories. And I'll, I'll tell you a story and then I'll point to some answers. One of the stories is what we're spending on cybersecurity has gone up because CEOs are now scared about losing their job. Eight years ago, you were CEO, a breach happened, 
you'd fire a chief information security officer, hire a new one, and move on. No problem. And then the CEO of Target got fired by the board for a breach that happened at Target. And every other CEO in the country looked around and said, I don't want to be that guy. And they called their CISO and said, hey, how do I not be him? And the CISO said, oh, that's not really possible. We're not spending enough money and we're doing the wrong things. And they said, what do you mean? Well, you pay me to keep people out. But once they get in, we don't look for them because if I find them, you fire them. So why would I do that? Uh, and so it changed the entire conversation. And so that's why cybersecurity spending has gone up. Reason one. Reason two is, hey, we just talked about it. Everybody moved online. And so if you look at the different hacks we've seen recently, we've seen things like Microsoft get hacked. Okay, that makes sense. We saw a meat packing plant get hacked. And we saw the Colonial Pipeline get hacked. There were lines at gas stations is a ransomware attack against a pipeline. So if you had said 10 years ago, oh, you're not going to be able to get gas because of a cybersecurity incident, people would have laughed at you. But here we are today. And so that means that everybody is piling in to spend money on this because if you don't, it's an existential problem. I hope that was a good answer to why I find this exciting space. No, totally. And I mean, if you were to teach someone how to evaluate, uh, in general terms, a, a cybersecurity business in terms of uh, how effective it would be, what are the two or three um, aspects or questions to make and indicators to see, uh, to understand how the business will be successful or not? Okay, so the things I look for today are cybersecurity companies that are fundamentally going after cloud-native technology stacks. Right. I can make it a pretty easy example here. If you've got a bunch of databases in a, in a data center, right? you've got a bunch of Oracle databases, whatever, you need a different type of tool than if all of your databases are in the cloud. And to my mind, if you're doing that thing in the data center, every database looks a little bit different. There's small tweaks, but it means you have to make a really broad, like Swiss army knife to fix that problem. But if you know that all of the databases are going to be on either Microsoft Azure or AWS, and that everybody's going to use the same golden template to start that database off, then instead of having a Swiss Army knife that can kind of do anything, you can make a scalpel that's only going to fix that. We invested in a company, and I won't show my companies to you, but we invested in a company recently that not only finds the problem, okay. but has a big button that says, fix it. And I was like, how can you do that? And they're like, oh, it's because everything on Microsoft Azure looks exactly the same. So there's one API for me to call, and I can fix these things because they all look exactly the same. Oh, versus if you've got an Oracle database, well, it could be running on Linux, it could be running on Windows, it could be doing all these different things, and fixing it turns out to be really hard without breaking a bunch of their stuff. To my mind, that's the interesting idea in cybersecurity right now. How to evaluate those companies? Oh, boy. I wish I had an easy answer. <laughs> the problem for me is good security and bad security look very, very similar until someone comes in and pokes a hole in it. Mm. I have an entire career of poking a hole in it, so I kind of know what to ask there. But telling somebody else, like, oh, we'll just do this, and you'll be like, that's the question. Yeah. Don't have great answers for it. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no worries. And, and uh, the fact that you don't have answers is uh, what makes your value proposition even better, right? <laughs> yeah, it does keep me in business. So I guess there's that. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. So we hear that you also source from different ecosystems, right? So it's not only US focused. We'd love to hear your perspective. Like, 
what creates a top-notch cybersecurity company in the different ecosystems? And is there any different ecosystem that you've looked at stands out in particular? And where have your main investments been made? Yeah, so mostly invest in the U.S. I've got a company in Canada. We've got one in Singapore now. So we're not scared of going outside the U.S. It's just finding those pockets. The easiest answer is one that we haven't actually done much of, which is Israel. Uh, Because everyone in Israel goes into the army and because they've got an incredible cybersecurity unit, one of the very common things to do is leave the Israeli army and start a cybersecurity company. The reason we have invested there is there are plenty of really good investors that live and work in Israel, that that's what they do. And I don't want to compete with them on there. That's the quick answer. The longer answer is there's brilliant security people kind of all over the world. You find pockets of them uh, in different places. For example, the Czech Republic has AVG and Avast, you know, $2 billion cybersecurity companies in a relatively small country, right? Uh, now, Avast bought AVG, so like I guess now it's one. But I mean, it's two giant winners uh, for a pretty small country. So like that's an area to look in. I've got a fun story about Brazil. So when I was traveling around Brazil in, you know, let's call it 2000, every magazine stand had a magazine with like a CD of hacking tools. It was the craziest thing. In the United States, there's no magazine like that. And Brazil, (laughs) every gas station, I could get a magazine on how to hack. Uh, And so I bought three or four of them. It was one of the ways I tried to teach myself the Portuguese. It would not surprise me at all if there's a whole bunch of, you know, 35 to 45 to 55 age people who grew up on those magazines who are stellar at hacking. And if you are, give me a call. Exactly. That's what I was going to say for listeners as well. (laughs) And Lucas, you mentioned about the role of the army being important for the creation of uh, cybersecurity companies and entrepreneurs. When you talk about the Czech Republic, any idea of uh, what makes uh, the ecosystem uh, creative for cybersecurity or any hint of uh, what the environment could bring for the sector? I don't know the answer to the Czech Republic. My gut says uh, AVG is an antivirus piece of software, right? But it was the first freemium product that I can remember, right? So you download it for free, you run it, and then it would be like, hey, you can get more features or I'll stop nagging you if you pay us. And that insight that the AVG founder had made a billion dollar company. No one wants to pay for antivirus. Oh, I might have a virus. No one wants to go out and drop 40 bucks. So you install a free one and then it finds something. You're like, oh, I probably should pay for this. That became a billion dollar company. And I think that just spins out. People spin out of there very quickly. Now all of a sudden like, oh, you know, this is a way to make money. You know, people learn how to do something and they start more and more companies. And it's kind of a virtuous cycle. That's what I suspect, but I've never really delved into like how that really happened there. Israel's pretty well documented. There's some very good schools that produce amazing people. Used for like quantum security, right? Quantum computing. The University of Waterloo, for whatever reason, they've got some of the best people in the world. There's other places I'm not trying to take away. It's just like I happen to know like that's a hotbed for that. Probably started out with one person who you know did their PhD thesis and then trained a bunch of people. I don't know how, but that's a good place to go look. That's very interesting. And you know, just going back to the Brazilian ecosystem and what's the gut feeling there. Because I think it's also a hotbed for a lot of good cybersecurity companies because I think it takes a lot of creativity too, right? We see there's a lot of creative people in the country. Like if you look at, about like 
advertising prizes from around the world, we kill it. And I think it's kind of the same place. You have to be very creative to hack, right? I think that's where it's born. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of great companies coming from here too. I, I would not be surprised. I'll, I will give you one, one of my theories though, which is big companies come out of places with bad weather, uh. right? When the weather's too nice, you go to the beach. That's why there's no big companies out of Hawaii. So my guess is you're going to find your big winners in the more industrial parts and not in uh, Pride the Hosa. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that you have a kind of a flywheel that uh, one big company actually inspire others and create uh, like mafias all over. And uh, the fact that we didn't see much of it in Brazil for cybersecurity is a big question mark whether we will see. So indeed, we are looking for it. <laughs> Right. Once you find the first one, the rest of them will naturally come. It only takes one. Where are all these kids that were reading those magazines, right? I know. <laughs> they've got to be out. We're just hiding. And Lucas, I mean, we know that cyber security is a big concern for companies. What about uh, the concern for individuals? I mean, we are all the time uh, connected. At the end of the day, it's uh, our uh, data that is reached. So, What are your views on uh, solutions and ideas protecting individuals and how do you see it evolving? Yeah, so we don't invest there because I find trying to sell to consumers to be really difficult. Like, I don't know what makes Instagram better than the 5,000 other photo sharing apps. <laughs> why, why are they worth a billion dollars and everybody else isn't? So I don't invest there, but I have ideas about how to be security conscious. The first one is... You shouldn't be running your own mail servers or anything like that. Like trust either Microsoft or Google, have them host it because they're going to pay billion dollars for security and you can't afford to. That's one. Two is use a password manager. There's plenty of them out there, but use a password manager because weak passwords and reused passwords are terrible. Three, turn on multi-factor authentication. Texts to your phone aren't bad but spend the $35 for the YubiKey or whatever the Brazilian equivalent of that device is and you know, have a whole hardware dongle, you plug it in once in a while and great. Like if you do those three things alone, you're head and shoulders above 95% of the population. I will say it's really interesting watching, take a small tangent here, uh, crypto as in Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, happen because it's made people highly security conscious, right? Like, oh, I've got $10,000 on my laptop that anyone can easily steal. And it's this interesting problem with like all the things that Banco de Brazil, is that, is that, is that still bank there? Yeah, still the public bank. <laughs> all the things that they do to protect your money, you're now in charge. And all the insurance they buy, that if your money gets stolen, they can pay you back, you have to go figure out now. And so crypto really like flips everything on its head of like, No, you really don't want to do that. Like, do you really want to keep, you know, a giant portion of your net worth on a USB key? Probably not. So we'll see how that folds out. But it is at least making people more aware of like, oh, yeah, that laptop has a ton of money on it now. How do I secure it? <laughs> so we end our conversation with a set of more philosophical questions. And um, we wanted to start asking you, How optimistic are you with the future of life and humanity? And how far can you dream of the world that you can create solutions we need for sustainability, right? What are the main issues or problems that you expect innovators, you know, in particular in, in your field and your sector, 
to address over the next few years. And does any of this currently drive any of your investment decisions? Boy, that's deep. All right. I am a naturally optimistic person. So I'm quite optimistic about the future. Let's be fair. Something that I don't deal with is climate change. I don't have to deal with it. It's not my, I don't invest against it, but I'm worried about it. We as people have proven to be pretty good at figuring out things as it gets to be an existential crisis. We'll see if that proves to happen again this time. But, you know, in the 70s, we were saying we're going to run out of oil in the next 10 years. And clearly, you know, it's been 40 years and 50, and we haven't run out of oil. Supply demand curves fix some of these things. But, you know, you talk to some scientists and we're past the tipping point. And so that's worrying. Uh, Cybersecurity is actually a wild mess. The same problems that we were talking about when I was 15 are problems today, and they're not really getting better. In fact, they're getting worse pretty quickly, right? And so that's a, a drive for concern, but it's also kind of an open opportunity to re-architect things in different ways. Right now, if you look at the basis of the internet, it's pretty advantageous to be an attacker, and defenders are on the low ground from a military standpoint. Anybody from anywhere can attack you, and they're anonymous. That's not how you design that if you were trying to be defense-friendly. And so... I think as we start to you know, create new protocols and build things up, identity is going to become more and more important. Like, oh, you can't even talk to my computer unless you've got a key that I recognize. That's the internet protocol, IP or TCP. It's not built into that stuff. But as you start to watch people build newer protocols on top, as you look at crypto again, you can start to build that stuff in. And I think people will. But yeah, right, right now it's a mess. I think it's getting better. As I said, I think the centralization is going to make things easier for most companies, right? The reason it's hard to defend everything is your job to defend everything. But if you hand over those keys to Google and Microsoft and Amazon, now it's their job to defend everything. And they get to see so much more than any one company could. So there's a chance they can actually do a pretty good job of it. So that's optimistic. Do I really want three or four big tech companies in charge of the entire internet? No, I don't. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of really interesting things in kind of the offshoots of crypto uh, and decentralization that are going to happen. I don't know, philosophically speaking, if you think of art as a kind of a conversation about what is beauty and meaning between different generations and people stand on each other's shoulders, I think technology is becoming a conversation between you know, kind of the people who built things to make it work and the next generation who are saying, well, yeah, but I really don't want Facebook to have all my data, so let's do something over here. And I don't really want Google to have all of this information. So we'll compartmentalize that and we'll you know, make it in a protocol level where I decide. I have high hopes that that stuff over the next probably five to eight years will become uh, more prevalent. And do you see like the concern on national security because of cyber issues increasing going forward? How, how do you see that? Because maybe the question about sustainability is also related to cyber wars and to biotech war that is related to this kind of issues, no? Uh, how do you see this? So when I was a hacker, I really enjoyed the fact that everybody was sort of on equal footing on the internet. You know, my brain's against everybody else's and I'm I'm equal footing there, and I'm 15. That's probably not what we want as a society going forward. You probably don't want a 15-year-old to be on equal footing with the NSA, right? And they're not really anymore, but you get the idea. But if you look at nation states, you know, we've essentially made attacking equal footing 
the U.S. is still probably the best at attacking. We always talk about, oh, Russia's attacking us, China's attacking us. I'm going to guess we started that. But, hey, it's asymmetric. It's way easier to shut down a pipeline than it is to create a pipeline, right? It's easier to knock down a sandcastle than it is to build one. And so I think what we're going to have to do from this is make the defense a lot easier, right? So, hey, by default, you can't route everything directly. Hey, you know, a random machine in China can't attach to any place in the U.S. Will that make business harder? Yeah, of course. But otherwise, you end up with calling a pipeline, which may or may not be Chinese, right? Like, I don't know who they attribute it to. But, you know, these nation states are attacking each other. It's not great. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we could stay here for hours uh, talking about uh, the future of uh, national security, cybersecurity, and individuals. But uh, unfortunately, we do have to go. So um, thank you so much, Lucas, for joining us on this uh, inspiring conversation about cyber. I would say that you have a very good luck on your fundraising, and maybe the folks that are listening to us would be interested on what you're doing. So uh, we are very open to um forward those interests back to you if we receive uh, any call from our investors. And anytime that you want uh, us uh, to help you on on this front of fundraising to Brazilian families, and I hope this uh, podcast will be inspiring for them as well, let, let us know. I mean, it would be awesome to make you some some interest and, uh, and help you on that. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate all your listeners. Thank you. Uh, I, I very much appreciate the time. Thank you very much. And just to end on a quick note, uh, we would love to hear you. We usually have an icebreaker that we ended with to hear something that you're currently very excited about and something that you're scared about. You mentioned a little bit in your last question, but if you would have to pick one of each, what would you say? So I am a competitive pinball player. So that's a thing. And COVID has prevented us from playing for... 18 months, but we did our first game of the new season on Monday. So I'm super excited to be back out uh, playing competitive pinball. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid of the Delta variant. I'll be honest. I don't think we in the U.S. are handling it well. And we have resources and we're doing poorly. I feel really bad for other places that have less resources. It's one thing when you screw up by yourself. It's another thing when you don't even have the tools to, to beat it. So the Delta variant scares me. Totally. For you listeners, just an interesting fact is behind Lucas right now, there's a pinball machine. And our last conversation, he told me that between his breaks, he goes and just de-stresses and playing his pinball. And I'm looking at it right now and it's like, oh, I want to go play. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lucas, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks all for having me. Have a great day.